And what we're going to do is we're going to turn open to Exodus 19. Once you get to Exodus 19, I'm going to ask you if you would, just take a moment, let's bow. Let's ask the Lord to open our understanding by the power of the Spirit. Father God, thank you that Christ has not only been victorious, but has blessed us with the indwelling Holy Spirit. We know, Father, that all Scripture is God-breathed. We know that all of it is beneficial for our encouragement so that we would not lose hope, but that we would endure in this life. We pray, Father, that the Word of God would dwell in us richly. We ask, Father, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate it to our understanding and give us wisdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just something to, to talk with you about at first. If you got a handout, you notice that you've got one of these in here. And what this is, is this is a diagram, and it's a simple one, by a man named Theodore Epp. Does anybody know the name Theodore Epp besides Pastor Steve? Okay, so some of you do. And some of you know that he used to be in charge of the Back to the Bible program. In fact, I believe he started that program. If you're somebody who gets online and you browse through Amazon and eBay and stuff like that, get Theodore Epp. He does excellent studies. He's a grace-based guy, uh, and he is someone who puts all the cookies on the lower shelf for everybody to take from, and we say praise God for that. Um, he, he, was, he was revolutionary in what he was doing at the time, and this is a very simple understanding for you to see dispensations. Now, why do I put this in front of you? Number one, because a lot of people who want to put together God's unfolded plan of history as revealed in Scripture want to make it really complicated. And here's the reason why. It is complicated. It is intricate how God has woven bits and pieces and how every detail of Scripture matters in the outworking of his plan. But what Mr. Epp has done here is he has simplified it for us in order to understand. So as you've got your chart out that we gave out to you a few weeks ago and you're filling in the basic parts of that chart, you can also go in and kind of time out Scripture reference-wise as to where all these things take place. So hopefully this is a help to you. Uh, maybe you can trim it down a little bit, tape it in the front of your Bible. That way when you open up the front cover, it pops open too and you can see it. But understanding where you are in God's plan for history is vitally important. Which leads me to this. You're going to walk away from today's sermon. You're going to go, I don't know why that mattered to hill of beans in all of life ever. Okay? Now I'm prepping you for that, but not saying that this is going to be a bad sermon. That will be determined on how much trouble Tom gives me. But... Today we are talking about the dispensation of the law. And no one likes to talk about the law. And the reason is, is because either we've heard all of our life that the law is bad, or you've bought into this idea of, well, in order to be saved and go to heaven when I die, I've got to be a good person. And how is that being of a good person measured? Well, it's measured by the law of God. That's not true. Either one of those things. We must agree with the Apostle Paul from Romans 7, Romans 6, that the law is good, holy, beneficial. It's God's Word. It's God's written perfection so that we can actually read it. In fact, it's interesting when you read through certain passages, if you're spending time in the Psalms, Psalm chapter 1, Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law 
of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, David didn't think that the law was a bad thing. But we also have to deal with how do we balance out the fact that the law is not for the church? How do we deal with that? So, with that in mind, we're going to look forward and hopefully unfold some of these things, and I hope that those questions will be answered by the end, and if they're not, send me a kind email. Or ask a question. We can do questions here. So here we go. You should have open Exodus 19. That's where we're at. And the very first thing I want you to see is the purpose of the law. Now I am going to walk around a little bit just to warn you. So Exodus 19 verse 1. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. So notice you already have a time marker of where you are in this narrative, okay? It's been three months since they came out. In fact, on the night that the Passover took place was the beginning of a brand new year scheme for Israel. God, for Israel, restarted the calendar. Now, I'm sure some of you kind of wish he would do that for you, right? Restart my calendar, please God. He does that for them. So this is three months after that event. They're out of Egypt. The exodus is taking place. And notice what it says. On that very day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. Now let me just give you a little help in case you're reading through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Anybody doing that right now? Okay, you're, you're saved. Praise the Lord. Um, but if, for the rest of you who aren't saved, if you, I'm just kidding. If you want to go through and look at that, anytime that you see the word Sinai, it's very helpful that you also understand, especially when you're looking at maps or something, that that is also Mount Horeb. H-O-R-E-B. That, that word with Sinai can be used interchangeably, and it is very much so in the book of Deuteronomy. That will help you eliminate a lot of confusion when you're reading through your Bible. And it's all because in certain times and certain places, depending on the history of the matter, they're referring to mountains or, re- or regions, locations, in certain ways. Old Testament, Judah. New Testament, Judea. It's important to know they're the same place, okay? So that kind of stuff. <clears throat> Verse 2. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to Elohim, and Yahweh called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. Now watch this. Here's where we want to pay attention to, the purpose of the law. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So there's the past recollection of what has just happened. Now watch this, verse 5. Now we're looking future. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. Now if you have a marginal note there, you will have like a little number or something there. You look over in your margin, you will see a special treasure. Highly esteemed and particularly valuable to the creator of all things is the idea here. And it says here, you will be my special treasure among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. In other words, you as a nation will be particularly valuable to me up and above all of the Gentile nations. The stipulation is if you obey my covenant, if you keep 
my statutes. Now look at verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. What is Israel's purpose? Israel's purpose in existence is to be God's special treasure. His own personal inheritance. In fact, let's throw this in here and you're going to say, what in the world are you talking about? It's okay. Believe me now, trust me later. It's all right. But in Psalm 82, you deal with God's interaction with heavenly beings, angels essentially, who have been given stewardship over the nations. Every nation on earth has a little g God over it. With the exception of Israel, who has great old big G God over it. Okay? And all of these nations are responsible for how they steward the existence and affairs within the daily, monthly, yearly life of this existence of people. And the charge is brought against them in that psalm. Again, you can meditate on it this week and look at it. It's Psalm 82. Is that they are to judge justly and righteously, to take care of widows and orphans. They know what is right to do, and they are to encourage. And how that's done supernaturally, I don't have the foggiest clue. But they are to preside over it and steward that society well so that it is seeking to be a display of righteousness because they know the difference between right and wrong. Because they fail to do that as celestial beings, they will suffer death at God's hands. Now that may sound harsh, but what's amazing to me, number one, is that even though all of the earth is God's, he shares it with other people. Because he shares it with other people or other beings, he gives them the opportunity to demonstrate faithfulness in doing it. But he also cannot let sin go. He has to judge it because he is a righteous God. He can't just sweep it under the rug. That does not work with an all-knowing God, okay? So we're talking about a big deal here, and what does it make Israel his special treasure? It sets them apart for a reason. Now, here's why this is important if you're looking at your chart on dispensations and you're saying, okay, today is the law we're going to deal with. The purpose of Israel starts in Exodus 19. The law is actually given in Exodus 20, and it lasts to the end of the book. And we can go ahead and count Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy as part of all that as well. When you're looking at all of that idea, what you need to know is that this is the only dispensation and all seven of them, where God gives the stipulation, the requirement to Israel only. There is no place in Scripture where Gentile nations in the Old Testament are ever held responsible for keeping the Mosaic Law, nor are they judged if they break a stipulation in the Mosaic Law. There was never a, this is for Israel and also for Edom and also for the Ammonites. There's none of that that goes on. And also for Germany. No, it doesn't happen like that. This is for Israel and Israel only. And see, this is the disconnect we get in our mind. Okay, if it's for Israel only and we're not Israel, why does this matter to me? Well, if anything, if for no other reason, the Old Testament is worth studying because it tells you what God is like. And if we don't know what God is like, there's no way we're going to be able to comprehend what Jesus Christ is like because he is God. So it's important that we pull all that together. Everybody with me? Now here's an interesting thing about this. Mitch, next slide please. The law contains 600 
and 13 standards of which Israel was to uphold. It is the What does it look like to be a perfect nation? God writes it out. He shows us. Now, here's what everybody does, the problem if they're thinking through this. Such extensive requirements for any society would have heightened expectation of failure. If you had 16, or sorry, 613 laws to keep, do you think you'd break one? No, not us. Not us. Thou shalt not lie. Exactly. And we would. But perfection, this is important to understand. Perfection was never Yahweh's intent in giving the law to Israel. God did not expect them to be perfect. He expected them to be holy. And there is a difference between holiness and perfection. In God, is there a difference? No. But with people, there's a difference. Now, how do we know that he didn't, under, he didn't expect perfection? There are two ways that we understand this, and this is just bonus. We won't charge you for it. Number one, the establishment of the tabernacle. The fact that they had a place, a movable, you know, as a, what do we want to call it? Like a, a, a burlap motor home that they folded down and took with them. They're going to have one of those. Anybody been to a truck stop and seen one of those traveling chapels, those types of things? I wanted to go into one of those things so bad and see what they're doing in there. But it's like that type of thing. We're going to pack it down. We're going to pick it up. We're going to move it on. And God says, stop, camp here. We're going to set up shop. We're going to camp here. The tabernacle and the sacrifices that were commanded, even those offered for the sins of the Levitical priests. Now, what was the priest's responsibility? The priest's responsibility was to take the sacrifices that were brought and go in and offer atonement on behalf of the people. Correct? Everybody remember that? Leviticus 17? Okay, so we got that. He's got this. Does everybody else got this? I'm real excited about this. So everybody stick with me. Get excited, okay? Lord, make us excited, amen, okay? But here's the idea. They could not offer this sacrifice until the priest had atoned for themselves. How does the priest know how to atone for himself? Where's that found? In the law. Notice this. So the idea of God demands us to keep this perfectly all the time, there is no exception to it. No, 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 no. Sacrifices are in the law. Why would sacrifices be in the law? Because it presupposes the understanding that imperfect people are going to not keep this law. Does that mean all of a sudden they've been disqualified, ejected from Israel? No, 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 no. no. This has nothing to do necessarily with your works even though it is a stipulations it has everything to do with your heart in relation to your creator that's important so notice the call for sacrifices presupposes the occurrence of sin among the people the means for atonement due to the failure were prescribed along with the statutes that were to be upheld but that's not the only reason here's a second one the people had already applied the blood that was provided by another and death had passed over them. Does everybody remember that? It's the last one, right? We all remember, what is it, Yule Brenner with that crazy-looking ponytail going on? My son kind of thing, you know? Moses is like, let's get out of here. Who's that guy? Anybody seen Ten Commandments lately? Who is the... Real quick, just segue for a second, because I can't let this go. Every time I watch that, who's that guy in the back going, God will bless us all. There are no monks at this time. Where did this guy come from? That's weird. Now, see, you need to go home and watch it. You're like, what's he talking about? Then you're going to see you go, oh. Okay, back to the sermon. So, It's strange. 
It's strange because it's like he's holier than everybody. And it's like he's leading a choir, but he's the only one singing. Everybody else is like, this lamb tastes terrible. So very odd, very odd. So the relationship with Yahweh had already been established. When the blood of a lamb provided for them was applied to the doorpost and death passed over. They were already at that moment solidifying relationship with Yahweh. You see what I'm saying? So relationship is no longer the issue. They're already accepted by God. They're already in that type of relationship with them. What is God after? After relationship. It's no different with us. He wants fellowship. And that's what we have to recognize. The law of God. I know you've heard me say this over and over. The reason why I say this is because so many people get it wrong. When I used to preach at a correctional facility for 13 to 17-year-olds, these poor kids, their grandma was the most praying person you'd ever heard of in their life. But their grandma also told them that if they didn't keep the law, they were going to hell. That was a, and, and here's why people do that. It's good intentions. We want to keep them in line and keep them from doing wrong. They're wearing orange. They didn't listen. Because the law cannot save. The law can only accuse and condemn, and that's all it can do. Okay? So with that idea, Yahweh is desiring fellowship. If Israel will structure their society around him and his righteous statutes, they will walk hand in hand with their creator. They will commune with the very presence of the Most High. He is inviting them to come in closer, is the idea. So why is God not demanding perfection? He's not demanding perfection because the law has the sacrifices for sins in it and the desire for God in giving the law is to invite them into a greater fellowship experience with him. Now with that, we want to turn and we want to look at some of the requirements. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And let's take a look at verses 5 through 8. Now, this is the second generation out of the Exodus. If you remember, the first Exodus generation did not listen to God when he said, go in and take the promised land. I will fight for you. I will be with you. You're not going to have any issues. Just obey what I say and move forward. Now, if that doesn't apply to us today, I don't understand what's going on. We may have cotton in our ears, okay? But that is a really good point. Just listen to what God says and move forward in obedience to what he said. Because they didn't do that, they were judged. And the consequence they suffered were death because of their grand disobedience before him. And so this is the second generation. This is their kids and the kids that they had while in the wilderness. And here's what he says to them. Chapter 4, look at verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as Yahweh my Elohim commanded me, that you should go do thus in the land where you are entering to possess or to inherit it. So keep and do them, for this is your wisdom, and your understanding in the sight of the who? Peoples. Now stop for a second. Let's put on our thinking cap. Who are the peoples? The Gentiles. Now watch this, guys. By Israel holding on to the law, the statutes, conducting their society according to God's prescription, they now become a radiating beacon. They become a lighthouse in the midst of constant, rampant, sinful, adulterous, Hearts. They now become a unique exception in society. Watch this. It says here, so keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Now pause. You know why that's interesting? 
because Israel is the tiniest nation of all the peoples. And yet the response of the Gentiles when they see them obeying God's law is, these people are amazing. I can't help but for something inside of me to testify that what they are doing is right in their society. Why is that? Because God has written the law in every one of our hearts. The conscience knows right from wrong. Everybody remember that dispensation? So notice, God is already setting people up to know him in a maximum way, and he is going to demonstrate what righteousness looks like if it were to be the prevalent means of living in a society. Notice what it says here in verse 8. Or what, or sorry, verse 7. For what great nation is there that has a God, everybody see that that's little g? That's what they deal on. They deal on the level of little g's. Israel deals on the level of big g's, okay? So notice, what other nation has a God so near to it as Yahweh, their Elohim, whenever we call on him? That's him asking for fellowship. That's him wanting increased fellowship with his people. So the nations will recognize their gods were distant. Their gods were far off. You were having to bring sacrifices to their gods of all kinds of crazy thing, like your children, in order for their God to even listen and respond. Said, so, nope, they go and they call on the name of Yahweh. He responds to them. He is a living, active, and personal God. They were setting a standard, a precedence amongst Gentiles was not recognized by anyone else. It's incredible. Look at verse 8. Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? In other words, righteousness can be measured. And it's measured in God's law. And when a Gentile nation could come along who were worshiping little g-gods and probably multiple little g-gods, it's very interesting because they're coming upon a monotheistic society. You only have one God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's different. We don't operate like that. Wait a second, your families aren't messed up. Wait a second, you still have all your kids. Wait a second, you can eat cows. I mean, whatever. They've actually got a society. You think that's strange? What do you know about India? Cows are sacred. People are starving. And people are sick because of all the dung in the streets. You know what I say? Cook them up. Fire up the grill. But because they have bought into a pagan ideology that no doubt a little G God is supernaturally behind and fostering the atrophy of this society, they are suffering the consequences of their paganism, of their false God. That's what we're dealing with. Interesting stuff. So notice, one of the requirements of this is because you are going to display the goodness of God's truth to everyone around you. Now look over at the next chapter, chapter 5. Look at verse 27. And this is where the people call on Moses to be their intermediary. Intermediary. Yeah, that one. Good. Excellent. By the way, Tom, it's Belarus, not Belarus. Okay. All right. Moving on. We're one for one there. All right. Hey, you may think that sounds mean. We're helping each other out. This is how brothers in Christ. Okay, never mind. Go on. All right. Verse 27. Go near and hear all that Yahweh our Elohim says. Then speak to us all that Yahweh our Elohim speaks to you, and we will hear you and do it. That's a willing people. You say, wait a second, is he talking about Israel? He is. 
at a moment in history, they had a grand sobriety overtake them, okay? Now watch what happens here. Verse 28, Yahweh heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and Yahweh said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of the people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. Notice the divine assessment of God is by them agreeing to uphold this covenant with me. Way to go. Thumbs up, gold star. He's excited about it. Look at verse 29. Oh, that they had such a, what's the word? Notice that's the issue with the law. The law is never about rules, regulations, outward conforming, and modification of behavior. It's never about that. It's always about righteousness in written code penetrating the heart. Look what he says. This is, this is God speaking. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, Moses, stand here by me and I will speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them. How does, how does truth get into the heart? It gets into the heart by teaching. Teaching Bible doctrine is what penetrates the heart. If you ever wonder what you're having problems with with other people, number one, it's not a physical problem. Number two, there is a lack of teaching of Bible doctrine that is not taking root in the heart so that we are thinking according to righteousness and holiness. Trust me, I'm working on that right now because some little person lied to me last night. Yep. Yep. You guys act surprised. Come on, he's a little sinner. Let's get it with it, man. But if, <laughs> did you hear what he just said? He said, you got to forgive your wife. <laughs> Not that little person, the one shorter than her. <laughs> Woo! Woo! I'll find out where he lives, don't worry. All right. You're getting TP in your trees tonight, brother. All right. <laughs> So notice verse 32. So you shall observe to do just as Yahweh your Elohim has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which Yahweh your Elohim has commanded you that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land of which you will possess or inherit. Notice the consequences streaming from this. So what are the requirements here? The requirement is, if you're looking at your chart, to uphold and keep the covenant or the statutes of God is the idea. Why are they doing that? Not to be saved and go to heaven when they die. That's not the issue on the table. The issue is, is so they will be a demonstration of God's righteousness to the world. Okay? So notice, the idea here is, world, look at Israel. That's the idea. And when Israel is upholding that situation, they're upholding God's righteous statutes. They've conducted their society according to his laws. They have. They radiate his goodness, and it draws people from everywhere. That's why when you deal in the Bible with the idea of the word proselytes, those are Gentiles who said, this is too good not to have a part of. And so they leave their Gentile societies, and they come be a part of that. Why? Because they want to be in the midst of Yahweh, the only true God. So Israel's to be the beacon at this time we're dealing with. Now, we all know the Old Testament story, right? How, how well do they do with this? Right? Price is right. Dun, 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 dun. Right? You lost on the price is right kind of thing. Everybody turn to Isaiah 1. 
And here's what I want to show you for two reasons. Number one, it shows God's heart, his emotion, how he is personally offended by their sin. But it also demonstrates the fact that what we're really dealing with here is the heart and the attitude of Israel. Isaiah 1, look at verse 11 is where we're going to start. Isaiah chapter 1. How do you guys like these pens? They're nice, aren't they? Emily found them. She got a great deal on them. Man, good stuff. Look at verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? In other words, you can sacrifice all day long. What does it matter? If you want to answer that question, you can take your handy-dandy new pen and write nothing. They don't matter to Yahweh. See, that's what's interesting. Sacrifices are prescribed by the law. Notice what God is saying here. It doesn't matter. Now, is he contradicting his law? No, no he's concerned about something else in regard to the sacrifices. How many Guys, how many of you have ever gone to the store for your wife because you had to? Okay. How many of you went to the store for your wife because you wanted to? Okay. Liars, every one of you. Liars, everyone. Some of you ladies are lifting your husband's hands, okay? But here's the thing. That's just not something we enjoy. Unless we're go- we need to go there anyway because there's something that we want. We're very selfish people, okay? And what happened? You- and here's the way, ladies, real quick. This is a freebie as well. The way you know that we only went because you want us to, but there was something that we wanted is because when we returned, we didn't get everything on your list. That's how we know. Why? Because men can only do one thing well. That's it. And we did what we wanted to do really well. Your stuff, whatever, you make do. But that's how we get into it. That's the, that's the danger. Let's just be honest about the whole thing, okay? So notice, the whole idea, what are your sacrifices to me? Nothing. They don't matter. Yahweh doesn't care, but it's commanded in the law. He doesn't care about your sacrifices, Israel. Look what he says. Says Yahweh, I've had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs or goats. But doesn't the blood atone for sin? Why is, it, why is he not taking any pleasure in that? Isn't that commanded in the law? Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? You know what this shows? Carelessness in coming to God. Coming to God carelessly. It wasn't about respect and reverence for who he is and what he has done. There was no essence of worship in the center of this. The heart was not devoted in understanding the greatness of God's forgiveness and the atonement for sin. They were just marking off the grocery list so that they could move on with the day. Or let's say it this way. They were being religious. You want to know a good definition of religion? Doing what you got to do because you've bought into the lie that God will like you more if you do it. And then going on about your day without a second thought of him. That is not anything that was structured. This doesn't even resemble Deuteronomy 4 and 5 at all. He's concerned about what? The heart. That's what he wants. Verse 13. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They've become a burden to me. In other words, Yahweh takes no joy anymore. There's no joy in them. 
Why bother to do them? You're still full of sin. It's a heart issue. He says here, verse 15, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands, it says covered with, the the little translation you'll notice in your margin, they're full of blood. That's your problem. You're guilty. You're guilty. Now here's what I love. He doesn't just chastise them. He doesn't just give them a verbal lashing and unfold his heart for them. But here's a great thing. He prescribes a remedy. Look what he says. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Notice, it is a call for every person of Israel to take the personal initiative to get straight with God. Now let's pause for a second because there's major application there. For some of us, our issue is not what God needs to do in our life. For some of us, our issue is that God is waiting to do things in our life, but we need to suck it up, deal with sin, confess, repent, and get straightened out with God. Well, that doesn't sound very gracious. It's completely gracious. He's already paved the way for us to be there. What else could he do? He's after the heart. He's after the heart. Where's your heart with God today? Think about that. Don't let that go to the side. Notice what he says. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Notice, don't just confess it. Remove it. If your computer's causing you to sin, have a bonfire today. Invite people over. Destroy your television set. Get rid of whatever is leading you astray. Don't just confess it to the Lord and return to the same vomit that you just threw up a few minutes ago. Don't do that. That's insanity. If sin is really a problem, deal with it and get it over with. Your right hand causes you to sin. Take drastic action to save yourself from garbage and come into fellowship with your God. Notice, cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Uh Uh-oh. Now you've become a meddler. You know anybody around you that's doing wrong things? Guess why you're there? To speak truth into their life. Don't just be worried about straightening up your own stuff. Encourage other people to know the Lord as well. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. And I know, look at the graciousness of God. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, if you will agree to this and do this, if you will humble yourself and submit to what I am asking of you, look what it says, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, if you continue in disobedience, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Does it sound like God has a heart for people? Yeah, the problem we have is is that people don't have a heart for God. That's Israel's issue here. And let's be honest, we can transform that same principle into where we're at now. God wants the heart. That's what he wants. Now, let's move into where they fail. Matthew 23. They have the law of God. They are to keep it and uphold it. When they sin, they're to come with the proper heart attitude and the sacrifices. Matthew 23. They are to remain tenderhearted towards Yahweh. And by doing all of this, especially the idea of humility, I can only imagine what a completely humble society would look like in affecting the people around them. But it's to have an impact on people. 
Where did they fail? Of course, this is Jesus speaking. Matthew 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets. Stop. What was the job of a prophet? Anybody know? Teach. What else? Rebuke. To bring the word of God. When Israel had lost their way, God rose up certain people to step in and to speak the truth that he had already revealed to convict them of their sin so that they would humble themselves and get straight with God. What does it say here? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Who what? Kills the prophets. How do you think they handled that truth? Is what the prophets were doing wrong? No. Notice it was that the heart couldn't handle it. Everybody see that? And so how does the heart deal with truth when the heart doesn't like it? Not just stops their ears, not just runs in the other direction, not just badmouth somebody. They actually took up arms, rocks, knives, whatever it was, and they killed the people speaking. Anybody ever known anybody that was killed just for talking? Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. Notice Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often, now watch Jesus' heart here. It's the same heart that God has, okay? Because Jesus is God. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. Stop. Does that just scream fellowship to you? How deeply I wanted to commune with you always. I wanted to have a relationship where we could sit down at the table and we could talk for hours. I desired this so badly. So what's the problem, God? Look what it says. And you were unwilling. It's a heart issue. You were unwilling. Behold, here's the pronouncement. And you could actually consider this some of the judgment. Your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I am sitting Israel on the back burner of history and I'm moving on to something different. And we'll get together once again, but your heart's got to be in the right place. You have to be willing. There's part of where they failed. Now here's an interesting one. Turn forward to Matthew 27 because Jesus wants to paint a picture for us. He's going to tell us a parable. Matthew 27. Is that right? It's not right. Where was I? What's it say up there? Oh, yeah, that is. I'm sorry. Yes. We're not to the parable part either. Forgive me. Okay, here's where it is. Forgive me. That, that's coming up here in just a second. <clears throat> this is, that's the judgment part. Here's another part where they failed. Verse 17. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent a message saying to him, have nothing to do with this righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priest and the elders, the leaders of Israel, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to him, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? What evil did he do, guys? No, what's the problem here? Heart issue. Notice, 
But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. Now, that's your typical political argument, is it not? What's wrong here? Just do what we say. It's just like that. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. Now, here's where it is, guys. And shame on Mel Gibson for taking this part out of the passion. He edited this part out after some screening with some Jewish people. Shame on him, because this is probably one of the most truthful parts of that entire movie. Verse 25, and all the people, who are the people? The Jews, now watch this. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. It is so right to kill this man that we are willing for our offspring to suffer retribution as a consequence for this action. What's that tell you about the heart? Here's the failure. They refused to be gathered into fellowship to Yahweh and they killed the Christ when he was sent to them the most exact, pristine manifestation of righteousness. It wasn't just the law and tablets. It was the law in the flesh, living out the truthfulness and the righteousness and the compassion of God before them. And the conclusion was kill him? Seriously? There's the failure to uphold the requirement if you want to write that in. So what is the judgment? Now we turn to the parable part. Turn back to Matthew 21, which is interesting because it takes place before the events of Matthew 27. Look at Matthew 21. I know we're covering a lot of scripture today. We still got 10, 15 minutes. We're good. You guys are being good sports. Are you guys okay with me going around scripture to scripture like this? I'm trying to cover the dispensation so we understand what's taking place. So, okay, good. Look at verse 33. Chapter 21, verse 33. Listen to another parable. Now remember this, a parable is a story that's told or an illustration that's given that comes alongside a truth that is in play, okay? So Jesus is going to give you a story, probably not real, but he's going to give you a story because he wants you to see the main truths that parallel what he's saying. Look what he says. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, (laughs) and here's where it all comes together, right? He sent his son. Now watch this. He sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and they threw him out of the vineyard, which is interesting because Jesus was crucified outside of the city on the western end of the wall at Golgotha. You ever take a a map of Israel and you look at it from an aerial view off to the west there on a hill. That's where he was crucified, outside of the camp. So they take him outside of the city. Notice that. And they killed him. Now I love it because Jesus ends his parable and he asks a question. Anytime Jesus asks a question to some people, there's a reason for knees to knock a little bit. Therefore, 
When the owner of the vineyard comes, who's the owner of the vineyard? God. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? And I love it because, and he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees here, the chief priests are involved. If you, if you need to know that, verse 23, chief priests and elders of the people were there. Uh, and also, if you look down at verse, um, let me see here, verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables. So notice, here's how they answer him. They answer him. They give Jesus an answer. Now, these guys must have been oblivious. Oh, well, that's so terrible that that happened. Here's what he's going to do to them. And then all of a sudden, the little light bulbs start to come on over their heads. Notice, they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And Jesus said to him, said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? And I love that because when you're talking to chief priests and Pharisees and elders of Israel, they had the Old Testament memorized. And for Jesus to say, did you not ever read this in the Old Testament? is like him taking off the glove and going Psh, like that. Just slapping them right across the face with it. Did you not read in Scripture? Did you forget this part that was going on? And look what he quotes to them. The stone, the Messiah, which the builders, Israel, rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, ethnos, a people, another people group, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone, the chief cornerstone, the Messiah, will be broken into pieces, but on whom it falls, it will, be scatter, it will scatter him like dust. If you also want to write in the judgment that takes place, you can write 70 AD-Rome. When the Romans came in in 70 AD and they completely destroyed Jerusalem and they ripped the temple from brick to brick and so that no one brick was laying on another at that time, they devastated that place. And I think looking back on history, we as Christians can definitely say this is the judgment that the Jews merited when they killed their Savior. Okay? Now watch how this moves forward. Verse 44. Uh, sorry, 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. In other words, it clicked. They completely comprehended it. There wasn't any question about what Jesus was saying. Now, here's the amazing thing. Didn't we just read about his crucifixion taking place in 27? Chapter 27? They still killed him. Everybody see this? They got what he was saying, and they still killed him. That is heightened revelation. And hardness of heart like you've never seen. There's the failure. There's the judgment. Now, in our cycle that we look at, we have a requirement that's given. We have a failure that takes place on man's part. We have a judgment that's issued by God because he's righteous. And then you have a demonstration of grace. Praise God for the grace part. Okay? Now let's move forward. Romans 11. We covered this in some detail when we dealt with the foundational framework series, if you want to go back there and listen to that at some point, you're more than welcome. But I just want to hit these highlights because how important Romans 9, 10, and 11 are to the plan of God for Israel. Chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, 
God has not rejected his people, has he? Who are his people? The Jews, Israel. Now, he hasn't rejected them, has he? And this is Paul asking a rhetorical question. And he says, may it never be. Now, Mary Cooper, forgive me. Is this Ume? Okay. I believe it probably is. This is what's known in Scripture as a double negative. He uses them all throughout Romans. May it never be. No way, Jose. Uh Uh-uh. Ain't happening like this. That's not how God does things. Don't even think in that direction. That's what this communicates, okay? Has God gotten rid of Israel? Do they even matter anymore? Look what he says here. May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, don't get freaked out. That just means that he knew them beforehand, okay? That's what that means. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets and they've torn down your altars and I alone am left and they're seeking my life. Can we relate with what we've seen in the scriptures about the fact that Israel killed the prophets that were sent to them? We get that, right? Look what happens here. Look what it says. Verse four. But what is the, now watch this, divine response to him. What has God got to say about this situation? Pay attention. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time, mark the word guys, use your pen on this. If you haven't cracked it open yet, enjoy the beauty of the the gel and, and go ahead and do it. A remnant, a remnant, excellent word, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. In other words, no matter how rebellious Israel gets, God has always assured through the portals of history that it is certain that there will be believing Jews at every point in history. He does not cast away his people. Now, there's the grace. What God probably should have done if we were God was cast them away completely. Obviously, these people won't learn. I'm done. I've had it. I'm just done with this whole thing. Quick tempers, completely bitter and irritable about everything, gone. Thank God that he's gracious, okay? Now, last couple of parts here. Look over at chapter 11, verse 19. And this is speaking about, just real quick, the illustration of where's God's place of privilege. And they liken it to a tree. There are natural branches, which are the Jews, that because of their unbelief, God broke them off, and he's grafted in unnatural branches branches into the place of God's privilege. And what is that? It's the Gentiles. And that is with the coming of the church, okay? But look what he says here. Look at verse 19. It says, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Now, if this helps you, branches that were broken off, there's the Jews, that I might be grafted in, there's the Gentiles. And look what he says, verse 20, quite right. They, the Jews, were broken off for their what? notice that the problem is unbelief unbelief is a matter of the heart that's the crucial issue here in israel's stead but you stand by your faith do not be conceited don't be conceited because you are in the place of god's privilege and look down on everybody else but what fear notice that 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, the Jews, he will not spare you, the Gentiles, either. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God to those who fell. Severity. Those who fell are the Jews. Severity. But to you, the Gentiles, God's kindness, if, there's the contingency, if, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you, the Gentiles, will be cut off also. Now watch this. And they also, who's they? The Jews. This is a critical verse here. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, right, from verse 20, will be grafted in for God, here it is, man, get this, for God is able, there's the, there's the trigger, for God is able to graft them in again. If the Jewish people will not persist in their unbelief, God will take his chosen people, his special treasure, and he has the ability to graft them back into the tree of his privilege. If we become conceited, especially against Israel, we will be broken off. Just because we're in a place of privilege now doesn't mean we'll be in a place of privilege always. Say, how could God break off Israel because of all the promises he made? He didn't violate any of his promises, but he did remove them from privilege. He still disciplines ongoing sin. Just because sin is paid for doesn't mean it's a foregone issue that we can get away with anything. That is a distortion of grace. It is not a license to sin more. It is the opportunity and the open privilege now to praise him. We never had that before. Never had that before. Now, let's wrap this up so that we can apply it to us. How should the Christian relate to the law? Look back at one chapter. Chapter 10, verse 4. This is an excellent verse. I encourage you to memorize this. Chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law. He's the end of the law. Get that. For, what's the word? Righteousness to everyone who what? Believes. Do you believe? The law has no bearing on you. Christ is already your perfect law keeper. He's already fulfilled the law on your behalf. And because you have believed in Christ and his righteousness has been imputed or credited to your account, you now stand as completely compliant with God's law. It has no bearing on you. None. None at all. What does the law show us? Well, what the law shows us is the righteous standard of God. The law is still useful, according to 1 Timothy 1, to discern exactly what sin is. And it can accuse, and it can condemn, but it can never save. And that's why Romans 10.4 is paramount in this situation. Are we wrong? Yeah. How can that be measured? By God's law. So I'm accused to be wrong. Should I be condemned? I should be condemned. But thank God a sacrifice was provided so I don't have to be. And because grace has taken place, free and clear. Free and clear. You are free and clear this morning if you have believed in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is your righteousness in your place. I like that. That's good. And he's not done with Israel. And that's good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the outworking of this dispensation in the law that we can look back on it. We can see that you have a gracious motive in desiring pure attitudes, humble hearts, tender hearts. 
before you. Father, you are merciful. Even in the Old Testament, Father, correct our hearts and our minds if we bought into this idea that the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God. That's just not true. It's been something we've been sold in the world, Lord. You are gracious throughout. Father, you desire in principle the same thing that you desired of Israel at that time, to have fellowship with your people, to have humility on our behalf, to come to you and say, Father, I have nothing and you have everything, and to sit at your feet, to sit in your lap, to lay over on your side, to have that intimate father-son, father-daughter relationship that you desire and that we desperately need. Father, help our thinking this morning to be corrected according to truth. May our hearts be tender, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.